There is, at long last, a plan to reopen California schools after a year of at-home learning that's been tough on kids, teachers, and parents. We'll hear what's in the so-called plan and what kind of homework it involves for local school administrators. And maybe you've heard that the economy is bouncing back from the pandemic recession. Well, a lot of Californians would beg to differ. Welcome to California State of Mind from CalMatters and CAP Radio. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera in Los Angeles. And I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. And Elizabeth, the state unveiled this new vaccine equity plan this week. They're saying that they're going to send 40% of the state's supply to underserved communities. Officials say that this was to help those communities where people are more likely to live in closer proximity, more likely to be frontline workers and people of color, groups that have been hit disproportionately hard by the virus. But they also say that this is a strategy to target the places where the virus typically is spreading around the fastest. Yeah, and I have a lot of questions about the plan. It didn't come out with a really good map for people to follow. So I, my question is, is this as big a deal as the state wants to make it out to be? People in those target 400 zip codes what do they do to get the vaccine, right? Can they get an appointment now? Do they have to wait until this is figured out? And who decides? I was playing with the zip code finder. So you put in the zip code. It says you qualify. You're in the zip code. Call your local public health department. Well, counties are still figuring this out, too. So I didn't put in a call. But my assumption is that they aren't quite ready to tell me what I'm supposed to do or where to go. They might direct me to the state's website, which is already, you know, hard to use and kind of clunky and has all these issues. So there's a lot of questions about that. Also, wasn't very clear from the state that this is actually still prioritized by age and occupation. So you have to be in these zip codes. But now you also have to be right 65 and older or be in one of these work groups that are becoming eligible to get the vaccine. So there's, you know, a lot of gaps here, I think, for people to try to figure this out. And then there's still lots of folks who are trying to game the system. People who wait in line all day, people who do get an appointment somehow on the website and then show up for it. So I don't know. There's still a lot of questions about this. Yeah, I mean, they're sending these vaccines to these areas. But my question is, how do they make sure, like you said, they actually get into the arms of the people who live there? And if you live in one of these areas, what do you do now? Like, can you just show up at your pharmacy and hope that they have something for you? Or do you have to go through your doctor or a community clinic? That can be a challenge because these are underserved communities and they don't have as many of those resources as you might think. Well, right. And if the direction is going to be go on the website, the state's website, then you still have those same issues that you're talking about. If you don't have a computer, if you don't have Wi-Fi access, you haven't been able to do it. And even if you do have it, I've been helping seniors try to sign up. And there's multiple pages once you actually get the opportunity to sign up. And it asks you all these questions. If you don't have the information handy, you time out, which happened to me twice um, in trying to get somebody an appointment, which didn't end up working out at the end of the process. Just think, how hard is this for people who are not computer savvy or don't even have access to Wi-Fi or maybe don't speak English very well? I mean, there's so many things that have to be overcome. So I want to see those details. What a mess. And we also have to mention that, you know, Newsom is facing this recall effort and it kind of feels wrong to bring politics into this conversation, you know, but his pandemic response is under a microscope. And this is the second March of this pandemic. 
And you see states like Texas and Mississippi not just loosening, but ending their pandemic restrictions. And Newsom's taking shots at those states. It's crazy that one year later, this virus is just as politicized as day one. Well, Nicole, I think it's fair to say that it does feel political. I mean, it feels all of a sudden like a big rush to get things open. And let's figure out how to make that happen, which may be this equity plan for vaccines, but also looking at, you know, how, which means getting businesses open which may be this vaccine equity plan and getting that out so that people then, the counties then move into these different tiers. But it could be in response to what other states are doing, despite taking some shots at these other other places where people are making those decisions. But one of the other stories that has loomed really large over the last year and also plays into this is the economic story of COVID-19, right? It's this behind the unimaginable death toll that we've seen, When the country and the world went on lockdown last spring, millions of Americans lost their jobs and incomes. And that happened here in California, up and down the state. Yeah, you know, in the Federal CARES Act injected a lot of money into the economy and into bank accounts. And you may remember hearing that actually people started saving and paying down their debts. Now, that is true, but there's a deeper story here. And we're joined by two reporters who've been digging into the numbers here in California. Jackie Botts covers inequity and economic survival for Cal Matters. Glad to have you back. Good to be here. Thank you. And Lawrence Dussault is with the San Jose Mercury News. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you both reported out this story. Let me start with you, Lawrence. I remember at the start of the pandemic, we were hearing that this could lead to a recession unlike any other. And usually in recessions, you see personal debt rise because people are putting stuff on credit cards and not paying those bills right away. But that didn't necessarily happen this time, right? Right. So from federal banking system data, the usual signs of household debt distress aren't just really not showing alarming signs. So for example, during the Great Recession, credit card debt spiked, bankruptcy rates, delinquency rates, which is when people are late on repaying their debt, also boomed. Versus what we're seeing during the pandemic recession, people actually repaid credit card debt more than ever before. One $108 billion worth of credit card debt was repaid in 2020. And the other signs of indicators of uh, household debt distress, like foreclosures on homes who are late on mortgage debt, those are seeing near record lows as well. Well, it makes sense in a lot of ways. You know, we're not spending money on the things we used to, like travel and going out to dinner. So the savings rate goes up. But Jackie, there are still millions of people that are out of work. Those extra unemployment benefits have dropped. What is happening beneath the surface here? So there's a lot missing when we look at these usual indicators of debt hardship at the national level. One of the issues is, as we know, California is a place with extreme inequality. It has increased during the pandemic. And when you look at these indicators, they're swayed towards the new home buying boom of wealthier Californians. And they're not showing a lot of the challenges that lower income people are experiencing. The other issue is that these federal indicators of debt exclude all kinds of really important and distressing types of debt that Californians are dealing with right now. So this debt data, it doesn't count the mounting levels of utility debt and rental debt. It doesn't capture the people who are borrowing from friends and 
family. 14% of Californians told the Census Bureau in January that they were doing that. It doesn't count debtors without social security numbers. And this data also doesn't count all the people who turn to high interest financial services like payday or title loans because they may have limited or poor credit history. And that was the experience of of Erica Wood, who we talked to for this story, who also got caught up in the EDD's crackdown on fraud. We actually are joined by Erica. I want to bring her in here. Um, Erica, you live in San Diego. Thank you so much, first of all, for agreeing to talk to us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Tell me about what you do in San Diego and a little bit about your financial situation before COVID. Before COVID, um, well, I was a research scientist, but unfortunately, I got a brain tumor, so I had to take time off. And after that, I ended up not going back to work and starting my own business instead. Well, I hope you're, I hope you're doing okay now. Yeah, yeah, um, I am. With, Thank you. Well, tell us about you started your own business. What happened there since the pandemic started? Well, I'm one of the first mobile piercers here in San Diego. What so, is mobile? What is mobile piercing? I'm not familiar with that. Um, I basically do a lot of like events or biker um, rallies, things like that. I pierce body pierce. Oh, okay. Well, piercing is one of those industries that has been shut down and opened up multiple times. Tell me how you're doing financially now and what the situation has been like. Well, I went to making over 100 and just owning my business of 2019 to now barely 13,000. So it's been horrible. There's been no events. There's been no rallies. And I haven't been able to get EDD because I've been one of those who've been caught up in the whole fraud things mm. for the you know so for I identified myself three times to them and I've done everything I possibly can I've even contacted the senator's office so it's been if it wasn't for my fiance I hate to say it but I'd probably be homeless have you been able to get any of your EDD benefits yet I did in the beginning and then it shut off like in September so so how have you been able to pay your your bills the last few months Well, I did take out the title loan. A title loan on your car? Yeah. I only took 4,000 out, but I got it down from 400% to 35.8, but still. Is this the first time you've used a loan like this or had to? Yes. I've never had to do this before because I made, I made enough money to where I'm always pretty much paid everything in cash. I kind of grew up that way. If you can't afford it, you don't buy it. So. Yeah. Jackie, you, you touched on all of this inequality earlier. Is it possible to say who is feeling the brunt of this the most? It's impossible to answer that question by looking at the data we have, but it's more possible when you start actually talking to people on the ground around the state. You know, when we're speaking to um, nonprofit organizations that are working with people who are looking at massive amounts of rental debt that is looming right now. They haven't had to pay it yet. They haven't gotten kicked out yet. So, you know, in terms of asking the question of who is struggling, you know, I would just point to the people who again and again, we have learned are suffering during the pandemic. People who uh, have lost their jobs repeatedly, work in the service industry. You know, these are the families that time and time are getting affected by the pandemic in various ways. And they're also the families that are going to end up with more debt. Um, I reported a story about how 1.6 million Californians have um, water debt right now. There have been 
a series of protections that governments, California and the federal government have taken during the pandemic so that people don't have to pay their bills right now or don't have to pay their mortgage payments right now, right? Don't have to pay their water bills, their energy bills. The estimates of the number of people with rental debt range quite a bit, but it's in the range of hundreds of thousands of people who haven't are not up to date on their rental debt. Well, maybe this is a question for Lawrence. Um, Do we know what the long term impacts could be on people like Erica that are taking out these kinds of loans? Is, Is there anything we can learn here from what happened during the Great Recession? Well, what we do know is that when people are affected by predatory loans, credit scores go down. That will have long-term consequences for people's ability to take out a loan to buy a car or buy a house. And we've seen that with the Great Recession. If what some experts are warning of this looming debt crisis when, you know, federal and state protections are going to wind down, that's kind of what we're fearing. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Erica, let me turn back to you then. Um, How are you doing these days? Can you describe what what life's like for you right now? Well, um, I'm just barely holding on right now. Like I said, if it wasn't for my fiance, I mean, he's he's supporting 100% right now because I'm bringing in absolutely nothing. I know, I mean, no matter what, I mean, I borrowed from my family, my dad. I've done that a lot. So I've kind of exhausted that resource. So I do everything I can to possibly uh, hopefully get paid someday. From the EDD. Yeah. So Erica, what goes through your head when you hear things like, oh, the economy is recovering, you know, people are saving and people are paying down debt? I can see that in a sense, because like I said, it's the opposite for my fiance. He's actually doing really good. So he's an electrician in the construction industry and everybody's like building or remodeling right now. And so there's that other side where it's completely different. So... Jackie or Lawrence, um, any notion of where Erica or other Californians like her can turn to for help right now, especially if they're not getting it from the unemployment agency? Oof, that's a tough question. In a certain sense, you know, you would ask Erica to exhaust all the resources she already has. She has spent so many hours on the phone with the EDD, with Bank of America, trying to get her case heard with sen- with the senator's office. You know, she's advocated for herself a ton. And that's what we're hearing from literally hundreds of Californians struggling with the EDD right now. There is a fractured safety net. There are, you know, small business grants that California is now offering. But again, those have been slammed. The thing right now is to ask people to sort of be impossibly patient. Lawrence, is there anything else you wanted to add? I mean, I think part of the frustration for certain experts who work, for example, with immigration populations and for people like Erica, too, who have lived and are living a situation that's so different from the numbers we're seeing is that there's this double edged sword where what the federal data shows is that help has already been given and has worked versus what we're hearing from experts and people, which is, you know, like Erica, I actually have not received that help or that help has not been enough for me, I am not eligible for it, and thus I will go seek these alternative services, which are predatory often, have very high interest rates, and then in turn, that data is not captured by the federal numbers we and experts are analyzing. It's a double story. 
Well, thank you all so much for talking with us. Jackie Botts of Cal Matters, Lawrence Dusso of the San Jose Mercury News. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. And Erica, we're so grateful to you for sharing your story and just wish you all the best and hope you get through this soon. Thank you. Elizabeth, it is really heartbreaking to hear people talk about EDD again and all of the issues we hear about over and over and over with that agency. It just never ends. You know, thankfully for Erica, the woman in your story, she was able to have someone who helps her get through this, but not everybody has that. And you have to think about those folks too. Like what if you don't have a supportive partner or family member or somebody that can help you get through this gap time while the state figures out how to help you. All right, coming up, it's been almost a year since California's 6 million plus school children left their desks at school for a final time as the state shut down. This week, the governor issued a multi-billion dollar plan to get them back into classrooms. We'll have the details. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from CAF Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. For most of the state's 6.1 million K-12 public school students, homework over the last year hasn't just been the after-school assignments. It's all been homework. And the debate over how to get them back in the classroom has been one of the pandemic's most intractable problems. This week, Governor Newsom announced a new plan that would provide incentives for, but not require, in-person learning. CalMatters education reporter Ricardo Cano joins us with some of the details. Welcome back, Ricardo. Thanks for having me. So it kind of feels like we could talk to you every week about the state of education during the pandemic. But there's a lot of discussion this week in particular about a deal that the governor made with the legislature. So tell us about right. that. So this is really Governor Newsom and the legislature uh, trying to nudge school districts across the state to reopen this spring. The main point is that it doesn't set any requirements for reopening All of that is still with uh, local school districts, school boards, labor unions to decide. But what it does do is um, attach $2 billion worth of incentive funding to give to school districts if they're able to meet certain target dates for bringing students back. So by April 1st, if you're a school district that is in the red tier, so to speak, uh, you're going to be required in order to get your share of that funding to offer in-person instruction to students in uh, transitional kindergarten through sixth grade, as well as at least one full grade out of middle and high school. There was a lot of jousting uh, among education groups about the particulars of the plan, uh, (laughs) how far to include or require safety measures such as testing and vaccinations. And really what we saw with this end product was the legislature and the governor decided to relax the testing requirements that were in previous versions of the plan. If school districts are able to submit their safety plans before April 1st, they they don't have to follow the the every two week or every you know once a week testing requirements for students and 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 staff. 
Why, why you mentioned the word nudge, and as much as people would like for the governor to actually push school districts to open, right? I want to go back to something you said, which is the reopening is still in the hands of school officials and labor unions, right? So there's this incentive, but they have to decide that they want that incentive to make that happen. What happens if you don't open? Is there any accountability there? So there is some stick, uh, mostly carrot in the plan. Schools that don't meet that April 1st target date are going to lose 1% of the funds that they're going to get out of that $2 billion for every school day that they're not meeting those requirements. You know, it's a lot of money (laughs) on the table and it's still unclear at this point whether that alone is going to be enough to incentivize uh, uh, local school districts to move forward with their plans at a a quicker pace um, or, or not. But um, that's kind of the, the penalty that school districts will get if they're not able to do it. And we know that there are some school districts, um, LAUSD, San Francisco, that most likely are not going to be able to meet this April 1st deadline. What we are seeing right now, and it's not clear yet whether it's the result of, of what's happening in Sacramento and the Capitol with the governor, is we are seeing um, you know, fairly large school districts in the state Uh, set target dates for this month. Uh, We've been tallying the data and uh, about 56 of the 100 largest school districts are going to be offering some form of in-person instruction to their students by the first week of April. So we're seeing movement that frankly we hadn't seen uh, from the largest districts in the state. I'm sure that there's uh, some, some parent advocates who will say it's not uh, going far enough, <laughs> and others who will say it's 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 uh, it's going too far. But nonetheless, you know, almost a year after schools initially closed, we're seeing uh, a, a greater breadth of them return or intend to return soon. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to hear everybody talking about the dates coming up of when they're going to open and now sort of feeling like they're scrambling to figure out how to make that happen and get everybody on board. So that leads me to a question about vaccines, because we've talked a lot about and people have been concerned about educators getting vaccines. How does that play into it? Because I think the plan says teachers don't necessarily have to be vaccinated for this partial reopening, right? There's no requirement for vaccination. The governor has uh, reiterated his belief that schools can safely reopen without vaccinations, but it's become a really big sticking point locally. And what this deal essentially does is etch in stone uh, a promise that the governor made uh, last week to earmark 10% of doses to to educators, to teachers. Uh, the reality is the vaccine picture has changed considerably, uh, even in the last three weeks. In early February, there was this very haphazard picture where some counties were prioritizing teachers and others were saying that they weren't going to be able to get to them till April. The availability has increased. Uh, teachers, on paper at least, have been uh, prioritized more. We're starting to hear uh, of teachers in LA and Alameda uh, begin getting their vaccines. And I think that's uh, really been a factor that's helped move forward discussions locally about reopening. Thank you, Ricardo Cano, education reporter for Cal Matters, for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So, Nicole, one thing I find really interesting 
or confusing about this is there are again more questions than answers. So here we are questioning a state plan again that no one really knows what it's going to do, right? And for me, this makes me think about what's happening with older students. Middle and high schoolers don't seem to be getting prioritized by this deal, but they need to go back to school just as much as the smaller kids, right? Yeah, the focus really has been on young kids and the students with special needs, you know, which is understandable. But the social aspect of school is so important for preteens and teenagers, and they definitely aren't getting that via Zoom. You know, I talked to a parent this week who has a second grader and has a seventh grader, and she's much more concerned about sending her seventh grade daughter back to class because she's just so worried about her her social health, and she's struggling more academically. Right. That social aspect is probably one of the hurdles schools are having such a hard time with in figuring this out, especially for the older grades. There's going to be more kids on campus. They switch classes every hour or two. All of that is increased exposure at a time when the state is saying have small groups with one teacher, which you know in middle school and high school doesn't happen hardly for anyone. And then vaccines are not approved for teenagers yet, so that just even raises more questions. But yeah, for kids who are now in their second year or graduating soon, they're really facing a tough time. Yeah, and one other thing to think about here, you know, more questions, is which districts will tap into this incentive money I talked to a parent. I have also heard from the L.A. Teachers Union that these big incentive grants will most likely go to the wealthier schools that already have the resources to put in all these safety measures, and they already have lower rates of infections in their areas. So who does get that money? And it goes back to the politics of all of this, but also the funding is going to places where they may already have all the resources they need, or at least as many as they can get to get through this period. And that's California's State of Mind for this week. Governor Newsom will give his State of the State address next week. It's the latest in the year that any California governor has given the address in state history. Nicole, maybe he was waiting until after a school's plan was released or they could talk about what they're doing to address this vaccine issue. Oh, I wonder if that's the case. (laughs) We'll, We'll be watching that closely along with all of the smart folks at Cap Radio and Cal Matters, and we'll get their insights on what it all means for you. That's next time on California State of Mind. Thanks for joining us. Nicole, have a great week. You too. See ya. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Figland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health.